Chris Sims joins us now. Chris is the BC Director of the Canadian Taxpayers Federation. Chris, good morning. Thanks for being with us today. Good morning. Thanks for having us. Well, it's good to have you with us, Chris. It always is. What are the priorities as you see it for British Columbians in the impending federal election? Well, it is kind of a neat day. Every time you start feeling like there's an election coming, there's a special feeling in the air, uh, especially in Ottawa. As far as British Columbians' priorities go, uh, we think that they're similar to a lot of other Canadians across Canada. Uh, Everybody I talk to uh, mentions affordability. Uh, They're noticing that their cost of living is going up in the sense that their groceries are going up, Mm -hmm. cost of their fuel is going up. Their rent and mortgages are often going up because of the housing prices. Uh, So I think that British Columbians' priorities will be very similar to their fellow Canadians across the country. It'll be focusing on affordability, and that's where we here at the Taxpayers Federation point out that, you know, if we're more than a trillion dollars in debt, that's really going to be affecting our cost of living. Well, again, and there's the, uh, the the liberals, as I see it, would like to frame this election campaign as a referendum on their management of the pandemic and leave it right there. Just a nice short sentence. How would we do? We think we did great. And uh, we'll spend millions of dollars telling you how great we a job we did. And that's it. That's all we want to talk about. Is that going to happen? Are they going to get away with that? Uh, great point. I think they're going to try to do that as well. Um, it's interesting. It's like, as long as you have no follow-up questions, you know, let's just have a conversation for 20 seconds and end it there uh, before the bills come in. And mm-hmm. this is the key part here. Uh, the spending at this federal government level has just been jaw-dropping. Even before COVID, their level of spending was astounding. I'll just in one example. In 2018, this is mind-boggling, the federal government spent more money in that year with no emergency, there was no tsunami hitting us, they spent more in that year in any one year of the Second World War, the Korean War, or our recessions. That's, of course, adjusted for inflation. This is pre-pandemic, too, Pre- right? That's right, pre-pandemic. Why? What is the excuse for that? Mm -hmm. They have none. And so you're right. They're going to try to say, how did we do during COVID? Remember, we sprayed everybody with a bunch of money. Don't ask us what the bill is going to look like and then vote accordingly. So we're asking folks, hey, remember, uh, we have long memories. The bills will come in. Ask them how they're going to be affording and paying for this kind of spending. By way of a counterattack, if you will, mm-hmm. the opposition, well, we know what the NDP are going to do. They're going to insist we tax the rich and that will solve all our problems. And I'm afraid it's just a little too simplistic for most Canadians to digest. However, there is another party in opposition, in fact, the official opposition, that is duty-bound to oppose and, and present a platform dramatically different from the government of the day. Is the Conservative Party up to the task? Great question. Uh, We haven't seen their full election platform yet. Uh, um, We're waiting to see that. Usually it's a few weeks into an election. Now during COVID, uh, we're wondering if we're even going to see a fully costed platform Mm -hmm. coming from these major parties. Because I remember there were analysts musing out loud saying, well, maybe there is no point in seeing costed platforms anymore. Well, goodness, you know, at least it's some sort of a measurement. So going into this election, one of the major things we saw the Conservatives do is change their mind and break their promise on the carbon tax. Right. We'll give you that for an example. Um, They were so clear on the carbon tax as a party for 
years and years and years. And all of their leadership candidates signed a pledge with the CTF saying we will get rid of Justin Trudeau's carbon tax and we won't impose a version of our own. All of them signed that. Mm -hmm. And then shortly thereafter and shortly after their annual convention, uh, the leader broke that promise and announced that he is going to put in a carbon tax. It's going to be about $50 a ton for the first one, and he wants the second carbon tax to be the same as BC's. And a lot of folks don't know about that. Well, out here in BC, we have a second carbon tax. It's a it's a fuel standard that's insisted upon by government, mm-hmm. and it's tucked into the regulations. It causes our gasoline to be about 14 cents higher per litre. That's one of the reasons why we pay through the nose out here in BC. Buck 71 this morning, by the way, on the way into work. That's right. And in Chilliwack, when I was going past it, it was $1.63 yesterday. Mm-hmm. I, I don't think I've ever seen it that high in Chilliwack. It's yeah. crazy. And one of the main reasons is because of that low-carbon fuel standard or the second carbon tax. Well, Aaron O'Toole wants that to be national. So unfortunately, we've got three big carbon tax cheerleaders in Justin Trudeau, Aaron O'Toole, and Jagmeet Singh. Right. So that's one element where the they're all very similar. Now, whether, you know, they're going to spend more on defense and cut back on public arts, you know, we don't know yet. We'll have to wait and see what they're proposing during their platform. It is interesting. Yesterday, we had a conversation with the folks at Democracy Watch. Duff mm-hmm. Conacher was on the program. Duff and I have been talking on the radio, Chris, for probably 25 years, and I have never heard him more emotional, more worked up than he was yesterday. Because, of course, they've had 15,000-plus people sign their petition requesting the governor general to say no when yeah. the prime minister says, we'd like to have an election, we need you to dissolve parliament. And I said, I asked Duff, he's a lawyer, and spends a lot of time on the Constitution. I said, can she do that? He said, absolutely she can. Yeah, is she it can. likely that she will? No. But nonetheless, uh, it, just very emotional. And one of the points that he made, and to you, one of the points you just made, Chris, and that's the, this, this costing out stuff. Uh, we're in, we're in a, deficit, a deficit right now, the likes of which the country has never seen. Uh, there will be tax increases next year. They are inevitable. They have to happen. And yet, uh, no one seems to want to talk about any of this. And the fact that the parliamentary budget officer, an independent an officer says point blank there is so much on the table there's absolutely no way we could cost this out in any kind of timely fashion before an election so voters could at least have a clue yeah and uh, i agree completely with us in that element of it um it is emotional because this is depressing it's alarming. Our debt is astronomical. And to have the PBO, Parliamentary Budget Officer, say, you know what, I don't think we can give people answers when it comes to these platforms. We need to slow down here. We need to realize that the bills are going to come. And this is where we keep pointing out, you know, we don't care which party's in power, but we're talking about the leadership element here. Mm-hmm. The, the lack of fiscal discipline that's happened in Ottawa right now, it's as if the, the finances are being decided by a bunch of people at a frat party. It really is. They've increased their permanent spending hand over fist. That means that non-emergency spending is just going to be permanently there. Mm -hmm. After COVID, they're projecting to keep on spending as if it's an emergency for years down the road. They've added the level of bureaucracy around the Ottawa area, permanent jobs, hand over fist. We've actually uh, done a study and asked them to show, has any federal government employee ever taken a pay cut? that you can actually have a record for. Mm. Because they keep on saying things like, we're all in this together, right? When folks were losing their jobs and taking pay cuts during COVID, we can't find any evidence of it. 
We asked them directly, and they couldn't find any evidence of it in their records. So now we're in this major mess of these bills are going to come due. And folks are already seeing it when they're seeing the cost of living going up. Um, and they're see- people are also worried about inflation. That's something that economists really like to get a handle on mm-hmm. more so than we do here at the CTF. But I just speaking anecdotally, I don't know about you, but our, our costs are going up, and everybody in my family and extended family say the same thing. And you talk about affordability, and you yeah. said that's probably going to be the number one issue for British Columbians, especially younger voters, Chris. And if you're talking about difficulty affording things like groceries right now, Add on a tax increase or two that are going to have to happen to be able to handle the bills. Uh, it's going to reduce affordability, not enhance it. Yes, exactly. And if our if our money becomes less and less valuable on the on the global market, that's going to make things cost more. Also, if our cost of heating our home goes up, that's a real cost. That's something that we can't skimp on because yep. we're in Canada. If the cost of getting to work or getting to the grocery store is going up through things like the carbon taxes, that's going to pinch as well. So this is all slowly or not so slowly pinching all of us in the wallet. And these politicians have better have some pretty good answers mm-hmm. because right now they don't. It just certainly looks like opportunism of, oh, well, let's get a majority or at least try for one. Absolutely. You know, and we need hard numbers. We need hard data. And all of this happening so fast, hot on the heels of what happened during COVID spending with the PBO saying, I can't cost this out. It it doesn't look good. Yeah. Chris, a couple of minutes only. Uh, What do you think the big battlegrounds are going to be? Metro Vancouver, for example, Jody Wilson-Raybould, independent uh, in Vancouver Granville, not running. Liberals want that seat back big time. So is Metro Vancouver going to be the battleground? Most of rural British Columbia typically votes conservative and is likely to do so again. The island leans a little lefter than the Mm. lower mainland. What do you see? Uh, Great question. I personally, if I'm putting my analyst hat on, I think that the Fraser Valley and the suburbs around Vancouver are going to become bigger battlegrounds Mm. because a lot of folks have moved out of the downtown core and they're living in places such as Langley and Surrey and Abbotsford and Chilliwack. So I think those are going to get a little bit more contested. Uh, areas around Kelowna, for example, will get a little bit more contested. Same thing out in out east. The 905 is going to be a major, a, even more of a battleground. Because once people move out of the downtown core into the suburbs, they'll often bring their politics with them, as they say. Yes. So that's going to be very interesting to see. And quickly, you said we, we need to raise taxes in order to pay for the deficit or the debt. And you mentioned the wealth tax. The wealth tax alone, at the rate that the government is spending, even if we soaked the ultra-fancy magical rich that everybody keeps imagining, that would be gone in about five days. Yeah. Yeah, there just aren't enough rich folks. It's Canada. We're just a, a big second largest country on earth with this tiny population. Chris, I'm out of time and I'm always grateful for yours. Plan to have a, a couple of get up early sessions with me once we get this thing rolling, okay? Looking forward to it. Thank you. You bet. Chris, Bill Curry is the Deputy Parliament Hill Bureau Chief and Financial Analyst at the Globe and Mail in Ottawa. Bill, good morning and welcome back. Thanks for having me on your show. Oh, it's good to have you with us again, Bill. Obviously, you watched the Prime Minister and uh, the address and the official calling of the election to absolutely no Canadian surprise, like it or not. What's your take on what he thinks the the issues are going to be? Well, I think it was interesting to see. What, I mean, one of the big questions was what what is he going to present to the Canadian public in terms of the reason for this election? Right. His... Uh, 
his argument is that this is a government and a parliament that has made a lot of big decisions over the last 17 months, and it's time for a check-in with the Canadian public to see if uh, they are on the right track or if they want a different direction. So that's, in a nutshell, his pitch. But I think what was interesting is he did get pretty aggressive in trying to use the whole vaccine issue as, as a wedge. And we'd seen that a little bit from liberal MPs and politicians on, on social media. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, this was escalated now to being a pretty key theme of, of the liberal campaign message, which is essentially right before this election, the government made the decision that they're going to move towards mandatory vaccinations. If you want to fly in this country anywhere, or if you want to take an interprovincial train, right. uh, you've, or if you want to work for the federal public service or potentially other uh, federally regulated areas, you need to get vaccinated. And um, clearly this is an effort to kind of squeeze his main rival, the, the Conservative Party, because there are some in the Conservative caucus that are uh, less enthusiastic about anything that looks uh, like a mandatory vaccine right, mandate. Yes. So um, Aaron O'Toole's up speaking now, so we'll see how he handles that question. But that could be a pretty prominent theme, at least in the first week. We'll see if it becomes a larger theme throughout the campaign. But I think that jumped out to me in terms of how... Uh, how explicit Trudeau was in making that an issue, because there there have been some uh, critics of Trudeau who would say that that's pretty crass politics to use a, a public health issue like this for a, to make a clear wedge issue during the campaign. So that would be the tension in going with uh, that kind of a strategy. In and, and Bill, also you being the financial analyst that you are for the Globe and Mail, would also recognize that uh, th- there there is a little matter of, uh, of of other things going on. If the Trudeau uh, government gets its way, and this turns out to be something as rudimentary and simple as as a, vac- a vaccine referendum. How did we do? Okay, vote, yes, a no, etc. I don't think it's going to be that simple. I don't think that the people of Canada are going to stand for something that is that transparently, uh, nakedly, a power grab. I think they're going to start asking questions, and some of them are going to be pretty uncomfortable. Right, because the Liberals are looking at polling that shows you know, the idea of mandatory vaccination rules is uh, is very popular. There's some polls, depending on how you ask the questions, up to 80%. So the Liberals are trying to hope that the vet ballot question falls along those lines, and they scoop that up. Now, there's an entirely different ballot question that Aaron O'Toole, we're going to see what he wants to present here. Right. When, when Justin Trudeau says, over the last 17 months, we've made a lot of big decisions, that's true, and, and you know, I mean, that's a factual argument. Yes, there have been massive decisions made, yep. and you could make the argument that the public should weigh in on that. But he doesn't spell out the effect of those decisions, which I think Aaron O'Toole would be more explicit on, which is the impact of that is we've had unprecedented level of, of deficits and much higher public debt. So we've had a deficit last year close to $350 billion. It's going to be $150 billion this year. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's unprecedented. Normally, the deficit's closer to $10 billion a year. That's, that's what we've been used to the last few years. So then the question becomes, you know, what do you do with that? The Liberals have a plan that they say will we'll shrink that gradually, and it's manageable over time. Um, will the Conservatives be more aggressive in, in presenting themselves as more uh, fiscally minded in dealing with that? Uh, the NDP also has something to say on that as well, which is, is pretty interesting, They've already released kind of the high-level platform documents, so we have a pretty good idea of what they're looking at. And, and it's all kinds of tax hikes on 
what they call the ultra-rich, That's right. uh, even higher than them, the top 1%. And their argument is essentially, if you're going to run these kinds of deficits for new programs, you should have a way to, to pay for them, which isn't something the liberals have really presented. Uh, in contrast to in the United States, we've actually seen the Biden administration, when they are rolling out their COVID packages, they've been tied, uh, coupled with some tax increases, and they're pushing on the international stage to have higher corporate taxes. So there is that revenue side that hasn't been talked about very much from the Liberal government when it uh, approves all of this uh, spending over the last year or two. And also, Bill, in terms of the preparation for the campaign, uh, your your, uh, colleague there at The Globe, Matt Lundy, just wrote a piece the other day called Why Are Millions Still on COVID-19 Income Support? It's complicated. And of course, the programs that you were just referring to, many of them were extended, perhaps cynically, until October, post-election. I mean, this is all a very elaborate plan. This is obviously some some thought has gone into this. Uh, I'm, I'm wondering, though, whether the, whether the benefits uh, are going to be, whether, whether, whether the COVID management is going to be enough. I guess that's, bottom line for me is, I don't think it is. What about you? Um, well, yeah, Matt Lindy, I would encourage your listeners to, to check out his work. He's, he's done some excellent work in kind of um, checking some of the points. We've seen on some of the small business groups have said, you know, a lot of our restaurants, uh, restaurateurs, they can't hire staff because they're taking advantage of these benefits and, and it's causing a labor shortage. Uh, Matt's gone through some of the statistics to mm-hmm. show that that's, uh, you know, there's, there's not a whole lot of strong statistics Canada evidence when you look at the labor stats and wages to show that, you know, are these employers raising wages to detract those, those, those recruits, uh, new hires, um, so it's not it's not black and white. I no. think that issue, but it's definitely an issue that uh, you're seeing a lot of small business people say is is an issue. So, uh, and as you say, you've got the timing. The government has extended these. So, um, if for people who are on these programs or using these programs, uh, when they end, they'll probably be upset. But that that moment has been pushed off until after the election. So. The, there's some programs that are clearly timed with this election window. We've For seen sure. also just in the last couple of days a lot of Liberal MPs promoting this $500 one-time payment to seniors, which was in the budget, uh, but timed for mid-August. Uh, it had always been time for mid-August. So we could have seen from the budget when uh, when they saw they're going to release this money to seniors who tend to vote disproportionately in, in higher percentages True. than uh, younger people. Um that was pretty uh, widely criticized as a as a vote buying uh, measure, um, but uh, you know that's that's what's going on here. There's, we also saw the last few weeks a whole wave of government announcements, um, all kinds of different things across the country, Indeed. programs and you know, broadband internet, uh, all sorts of, of cash. shoveling so, the yeah, money the off the back of the truck. They're using the, the levers of government to set the stage for. Uh, for this campaign. No question. Uh, Bill, we left the phone lines open because we were talking to some BC voters after the uh, the uh, special when it was on TV. And uh, so our, we still have some of our listeners with us. Nancy in New West wants to jump in on this conversation as well. Nancy, thanks for waiting. Good morning. Not a problem. Good morning, Sterling and Bill. Um, I have two points I'd like to make. Go ahead. The first one being that we did not have a choice as to this election being called. That was Prime Minister Trudeau's, leader of the opposition Trudeau's, 
uh, call on when he called this election. Okay. We do, however, have a choice of what we do with that. Mm-hmm. On September 20th, everyone, and I mean everyone, needs to get out and express their opinion. If you don't like it, go out and vote that. If you do like it, go out and vote that. I don't really care who you vote for. Right. Just get out and vote. Mm. Point number two is... Uh, when our girls turned of voting age, we made sure that not only did we go to all candidates meetings in our writings, but we took them along. We never told them who we were voting for, right. but we made it very, very clear that in this household, it is very important that you exercise your right to vote. It is a privilege for you to do your homework, figure out who you best align with. And then vote. And to this day, our girls vote in every single election, and I'm very proud of them for that. Well, you're a good mom, Nancy. Thank you very much for the call. I was raised in a similar fashion. Voting, not voting, is just not on. Uh, Bill uh, Curry joining us from Ottawa. Uh, Similar background, understands the family uh, sentiments there. Uh, Bill, the point is uh, that Nancy raised, uh, the other point, no choice involved. What we never do have a choice as to when the calling of election goes, unless it happens to be one of those official ones that you know pops up on schedule but we do as she also pointed out have a choice we do have the ability to take action and on the matter of not voting bill just for your comment i say not voting is in fact a vote for the government of the day by not expressing a sentiment against them or for them you are supporting them what do you think uh, well, I like Nancy's point. It's not just a matter of, like, people always say it's your duty to vote, sure, but it's also your duty to cast an informed vote. Right. So I like that Nancy uh, is urging her uh, daughters to make sure that they are informed when they vote, to get to know their local candidates and get to know uh, the parties and the issues, and, and so that's that's a, a great message. I mean, I always like the, the line, too, if you don't vote, you can't complain, so... Um, Election call day. Our guest is Bill Curry, Ottawa, Deputy Ottawa Bureau Chief with the Globe and Mail. And Bill, here's an email from Jim. This is a classic sort of BC response. How can our democratic process be when thousands of British Columbians are on the run from wildfire evacuation in order to fight or to resist wildfires? When, where will we vote? We don't even know if we have homes to attach ourselves to a riding anymore. That $600 million could go a long way towards wildfire mitigation in British Columbia, says Jim. Uh, again, uh, priorities, folks? What do you think? Well, I mean, that will be one of the issues, too, in this campaign is uh, it's not exactly a sleepy August on the on the, the government policy front. We've got today, uh, you know, in Afghanistan. Absolutely, yes. Uh, major issues that the federal government is going to have to be involved in in uh, evacuating uh, not only Canadian diplomats, but they've promised to help out 20,000 Afghans yep. who have helped uh, Canadians in some way. So that's a major government issue. The wildfires in B.C. is, is an escalating policy issue. Um, I would, you know, that's primarily a provincial role, but uh, I would think that there's assistance that the federal government could Well, be if the polling station the just burnt yeah. down, it's federal, Bill. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, but you've also got two... Um, if the military is going to get involved, uh, we've got uh, a lot of confusion over the leadership of the military. No kidding. <laughs> Who's the chief of defense staff right now? That's right. Um, so there's a lot of priority issues going on this, this August that uh, we're, 
now putting the federal government in a caretaker status, which puts the public servants in charge, and you know they can continue to run the government, but um, it's uh, you know you're going to have distracted ministers of defense and natural resources. Uh, that's an interesting point to make, Bill, because the Horgan government did take some criticism when it uh, called that snap utterly unnecessary election last year, because they too went into caretaker mode and bureaucrats were in charge during a pandemic. People were made to feel less than secure. We did okay, but it did not go uncriticized. One more call here, Aiden on Bowen Island. Good morning. Good morning. Um, I don't. I will be trying to vote for a party that breaks less promises than, than the Liberals have okay. uh, over time. And uh, speaking, of, I agree with Jim's point. And speaking of, to Nancy's about voting, I hope that the election is as accessible as our BC provincial election was with telephone voting mm-hmm. or some type of virtual voting that would probably help with the wildfire uh with, with the people with, with no fixed address at this point well there's no kidding about that and by the way bill it's also a, a going to be a point this year that we're not likely to actually know the results on election day are we because of the expected large percentage of people who will vote by mail yeah and elections canada had actually asked uh for a longer than the minimum election time. The minimum is 36 days, mm-hmm. you go up to 50 days. And uh, for the reasons that your your colleague, uh, your caller just mentioned, the, the logistics issues, uh, Elections Canada wanted more time, and Trudeau clearly has uh, rejected that advice because he set it for the 20th of September, which right. is the minimum shortest time. So that causes some logistical challenges for Elections Canada with this being in a snap election and because of COVID. And um, as, as you mentioned, there's been uh, reports that they might have a challenge getting the results out uh, immediately on election night. No question about it. Bill, it's great to have you back on the show this morning. We appreciate your time. Congratulations on the promotion, by the way. And we we'll look forward to uh, tapping your uh, financial analyst uh, credentials uh, over the next few weeks as we get into the campaigns and find out exactly how much is involved with the expenses behind each. Great to have you back today. Thanks very much. Thanks, Sterling. Claire Newell joins us now from Travel Best Bets. It's time for our travel segment on CKNW Sunday mornings. Hello, Claire. Hi there, Sterling. I want to tie in a little bit of personal to what you were talking about just now. Okay. Um, I'm not sure you remember me telling you that my daughter was going to be going down to the U.S. to do uh, her master's degree, and she actually left this weekend. I'm kind of fragile about it, I have to admit. You might hear a crack in my voice. Oh, okay. But um, anyway, she's driving down to the... U.S. She had to cross the land border, which I have to tell you was a bit scary for her. She was so nervous, you know, having her student visa, and it was, you know, a big worry. You know, does she have all of the documentation she needed? Of we chose to get her an antigen test, um, which she didn't even need to show. But I just wanted to make sure she had absolutely yep. everything she needed. Um, but she's been um, updating me along the way, and it's great because she's actually doing the road trip with my husband, so it's no big deal. Like they're together. But the fire, um, the smoke, they haven't left it. They have gone um, through Washington and, and now, they're in Oregon, now into right? Idaho. Yeah, well, they went, they're crossing from Oregon into Idaho. Oh, my. And they spent the night in, in um, Boise, Idaho last night. And tonight in Vegas, <laughs> my husband wanted to, to, to show her a little bit of Vegas. They're going to be really careful. They're both fully vaccinated. Um, and there are some really good COVID plans in place at the hotel. I actually made sure of that. And they'll be they'll be really careful, but I think it'll be fun for her at 22 to see kind of the bright lights of Vegas. Oh yeah, 
Yeah, um, but she has. They said she said the smoke hasn't stopped. So I'm really hoping that the rain will get some of it away here, at least in BC. Yeah, and, um, and the forecast calling for clouds and and sixty percent chance of showers tomorrow. A little less on Tuesday, but hopefully that's enough to clean things up. As you know, we haven't had very much rain all summer, so every little bit helps. Claire, yeah, I, wanted, I wanted to talk a little bit about mandatory vaccinations this morning because now the government of Canada has said if you're going to go on a train or some kind of cruise ship, large marine vessel, that would be a cruise ship in my books, uh, or yeah. any other air, aircraft, that sort of thing. Uh, masks and mandatory vaccinations are going to be the ticket going forward. Uh, this is not a surprise to those of you tra- travel professionals, but it may no. come as a surprise to some passengers. Yeah, I think so. I think that there's um, there. It even affected uh, my son has to fly back east to go to university, and one of his friends' um, parents are against the vaccine. And you know, how are he, he might be able to go? But I think they're talking about by October right, that right. people, all passengers, air, rail, cruise, and air, including into provincial. So how would this kid get home? Now, I did know that I, when I read the press release, it was very um, kind of skint on details mm-hmm. um, because it hasn't addressed exemptions for people who are medically ineligible and those who are under 12 who are not able to be vaccinated. That will have to be addressed, obviously, um, um, maybe they're going to need to do a, a negative COVID test prior to their flight, but it's interesting. Uh, or their or their bus, maybe, or their rail. Like they just they 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 they're going to have to have some sort of exemption for for those people. But I it didn't surprise me, especially with an election coming. This was made by Transport Canada. We obviously know that Canadians are really supportive of the use of vaccines. So many people have had their first dose, and many. Uh, have had their second dose, that number keeps on climbing. So obviously the federal government is going to be using this as a as a bit of a leverage in their election um, because they do know that they have so much support. And they also have a lot of support for people using vaccine passports for going or proof of vaccination to go into, you know, events and things. So yes. It, more and more of this is coming, and it, it's not really a surprise to me. What United Airlines, this was in one of the news pieces I, I sent to you, the United Airlines, first major U.S. airline to require all of its employees to be vaccinated against COVID-19. We know the federal government here, their employees that work under the federal government will need to be vaccinated. Right. And um, I actually had to phone the two hotels that my husband and my daughter are going to when they were going to the States because so many hotels, and I feel everyone should be asking their hotel before they make their reservation, what do you need? Because now in popular destinations, they're mandating hotel guests show either proof of vaccination uh, or I get if they have, they have to have a negative COVID-19 test. Just to, to go check in. in. Yes. So this uh-huh. is more and more of um companies are it's going to become the norm and so i know that people are thinking that they might be able to you know travel without the vaccine it's going to be harder and harder and there will be way more steps and Mm -hmm. way more costs if you don't so then uh the uh, but again i think the the the, the most important part of it all is the fact that it is it's this is not going to happen tomorrow this is being uh, slowly introduced with a deadline clearly marked and clearly indicated it's going to be in october by which time x y and z have to have happened but it's only august so we've got time to make to do the pivoting that we're all becoming pretty accomplished at 
Yeah, I think we're all getting quite used to this, and the the more and more um, it, it comes to work with respect to travel. Like now with airlines and hotels and more and more companies and countries saying you have to be vaccinated, we have always said this along the whole way that, you know, that kind of vaccination um, is your, your golden ticket when it comes to travel. And we're starting to see that. I know that there's some issues with mixed doses and people are a little bit worried about that. People yes. are worried about the um, spacing of the doses in some, like, not very many, but I've seen some companies say that you need to have those doses within 12 weeks. Well, I was 13, mm. right? And I'm mixed dose. So all of these issues, I really do hope that the federal government will deal with quickly. And if not, they have to come up with some sort of a solution because I know that people are itching to travel. Whether that's for essential or, or in their mind, you know, non-essential, but needing a break. We've been here uh, for 18 months. Many of us have not been on a plane at all and that's want right. some downtime. And so this this is going to have to be addressed. And I think the federal government knows that. Right. And now I know you've got a couple of deals for us this morning. But just before we get to those, uh, talking yes. about this this pent up demand as we have been for so many months, you've got some numbers from Kayak. Canadians yes. are definitely on the prowl. Now, we're not going anywhere. We're just prowling the Internet right now. But boy, are we getting busy. Uh, Canadians are are searching destinations. Tell us more. Well, uh, this was actually a survey that was done on July the 19th. That was the day that the federal government announced a bunch of travel um, easing of restrictions. And that day, 322% spike in searches by Canadians to U.S. destinations. So uh, no surprise to me, of course, Hawaiian Islands, Vegas, New York, Florida, you know, typically where Canadians love to go. But wow. A lot of people want to travel. Mm-hmm. Again, there's your pent-up demand. And I guess the one thing that you – my takeaway from our conversation this morning, Claire, is if I'm going to book a hotel, particularly in some other country, I should know in advance whether they're going to accept me at check-in. What do you have to have just to check into the Blinken Hotel? Some of them are going to want to see a vaccination certificate, et cetera, et cetera. So that's a very important little bit of homework for all of us to learn to do going forward thank you for that yeah well i still recommend you know the keep using covidcontrols.co find out what the country needs but there may be even limits you know to the accommodation that you want so you're right that is the takeaway here a country may let you in um without but you still may need to prove it if you want to stay in a certain accommodation good point now how about those deals what do you got for us this morning Oh, I'm doing something really close to home. I've got a Victoria getaway that's available from October 1st through until the end of the year. And it's two nights at that gorgeous five-star Oak Bay Beach Hotel. You get use of their seaside mineral pools and Wi-Fi is included. It's $189 plus $64 tax per person based on two sharing. Again, that one is starting October 1st because I know a lot of people might want it now. It's not yeah. not now. Our producer, um, Phil, was just over in Victoria this week for a couple of days. He says it was packed but busy and lots of fun. What else have you got? He- I've got a Camloops getaway that's available until October the 15th. Again, this one has been popular. A lot of people might want to wait till the smoke clears a bit, mm-hmm. but it's a two-night hotel, and it's a four-star property. The property itself is only two years old. It's really beautiful. It comes with a $50 dining credit, uh, BC Wildlife Park passes, parking, and wine tasting at Montreux Creek Winery. If it were me, I'd wait till kind of late September or October because of the harvest season sure. and go to that winery. That's one sixty-four plus forty-one dollars tax per person based on two sharing. And the last deal, I can't get a lot of people can't get enough of this one because of the price point. 
It's a Nova, uh, Nova Scotia self-drive tour that includes the flight. So this is available until October 24th. It's airfare, six nights accommodation, your breakfast every day, seven-day car rental, and a guided tour of Halifax, plus the entrance to Cape Breton's Highlands National Park. It's $12.99 plus $283 tax Again, per person, based on two sharing. Obviously, it includes the flight. But a lot of people want to do something in Canada. And right. this is a way of kind of knocking something off their bucket list here. If you haven't done Nova Scotia, what a cool place. And the Cape Breton is just absolutely breathtaking. And, and six yeah. nights and seven-day car, seven car rental, airfare, the whole package. That's very attractive. Friends, lots more information on this and the other deals available are at Claire's excellent website, TravelBestBets.com. Claire, thanks for this this morning. Some important stuff. We are always welcome to have you uh, educate us and bring us up to speed. It's moving pretty fast. Thanks. Yeah. Thanks, Sterling. Welcome to the Arts Corner. It's a real pleasure to say good morning to Catherine Morrison, Director at Large with Metro Theatre again. Catherine, hello. Good morning. Welcome back. Good morning, Sterling. Nice. To, I haven't talked to you in a long time. Well, it's been a while. And, you know, we started doing the Arts Corner just about the same time COVID-19 descended upon us. And for the last <laughs> year... And, uh, I know, timing is... <laughs> we're, we're not all, all that accomplished in that department, Catherine. But, you right. know, what we, what we have managed to do over the last year and a half is come to know people like you, people in the arts community and all sorts of artistic endeavors and activities, and find out uh, over this trying period of time how so mm-hmm. many people in the arts community so deeply committed to the arts are nonetheless finding their way through all of this. And now, Catherine, we're at the point where we get to invite guests like you back with good news stories. Good, and, exactly. And you've got a director's tale for us this morning because you held some auditions recently. Tell us. Yes, yes. We had auditions uh, about five days ago, Tuesday night. There were actors back on Metro stage. They didn't have costumes. They weren't on a set. They were only auditioning, but it was sure nice to have them back. I'll bet. And we had a big, big turnout. The show is The Odd Couple, which is, of course, a cl- just an absolute comedy classic. Oh, sure. And so um, I think just the fact that for a year and a half, the actors hadn't been able to, to be on stage and The Odd Couple is such a popular play with such iconic characters. They came out in droves, and it was a very long night, actually, um, to, to get through everybody and hopefully give everybody a fair read. Mm-hmm. I've got callbacks, actually, this afternoon and then again tomorrow, and should have it fully cast. Well, I know I'll have a fully cast by tomorrow night. Oh, interesting. Um, so you're going to get, get into rehearsal. Narrow it down to Felix and Oscar in the next 24 hours, then? Well, right? the, the show's not just Felix oh, and Oscar. Oh, I know Oscar. that. There's also the four poker players right. and, but the friends, and, and their important roles as well. They're they're in the on and off through through different poker games through the show, and then of course there's the two um, uh, pigeon sisters, the sisters, uh, Cecily that's and right. Gwendolyn Pigeon, that's the right. English girls who come for dinner, turns into such an ill-fated um, and un- an unfortunate dinner party. Um, there's there's uh, they're in a very important scene as well. But you're right. Uh, it does focus on the odd couple sure. themselves, Felix and Oscar. And I've got some very, very good choices. I know I, I got an email from one actor who I've worked with before, and he said, boy, what a lot of talent on the stage, and I do not envy you try, trying to weed through right. and, and picking. Because um, I some, at one point I thought, I could cast this show with three different, three different sets of actors. Mm-hmm. 
So uh, you're well rested for this process, if nothing else, Catherine. <laughs> well, you know, we have been busy at Metro. We haven't been sitting on our respective oh, I areas. Know that. Um, we have been refurbishing the theater. Um, we ha- there's been a, a group of volunteers led by um, Megan King from Tangem Designs. Um, she has been instrumental in getting us paint for free. Um, also, she's provided her paint and design services, and we've had board members and other volunteers coming in painting uh, the front doors, the lobby, oh, the wonderful. box office, all the washrooms, the stairway, new lighting, new decorating. So in the last three or four months, actually, there's been quite a bevy of activity within the, the physical plant. And when is the first production going to hit the stage? Will it be The Odd Couple? Because I know no, Steel Magnolias is coming up. The first one is actually, it's a, co- it's a co-production with us and Boondog Productions, and this is an equity co-op. Um, this means all the actors in the show are professional. They belong okay. to Actors' Equity, mm-hmm. um, and it will be a wonderful show. Um, Shel Piercy is the director, and it's Steel Magnolias, and it opens September 25th. Okay. So that's our first show in the season. All right. Now, what is the capacity going to be? Um, September 25th is after September 7th, and that may or may not affect the ability to put more uh, members of the audience in the theater. But what are you planning for now, capacity-wise? At at the moment, I think we're allowed half. Okay. Okay. Um, Metro has 310 seats. So half would be 155. Okay. Now, sadly, I have to say, generally, um, for a play, we don't get 155 people. We wish we did, but generally we don't. We get more like 100, 120 something. So if we have that stipulation, that will not affect us. Okay. It might affect us if it continues for later in the in the season when we do the panto. You know, our panto is very popular. Sure it is. You know, a music and if people don't know what a panto is, it's basically a musical based on a legend or a fairy tale. Mm-hmm. In this, for this year, we're doing Snow White. Okay. So. Um, we often get more than 155 people. We can be close to capacity, uh, but that's not until that's not until December. So, so I'm, I'm almost out of time here, and I just want to make sure if people want to see Steel Magnolias starting September 25th at Metro Theater, you should go to the website and buy tickets online. Is that the recommendation? You, you can buy online, or you can phone the box office two six six. 7191 and uh, even though we're not fully staffed at this moment someone will return your call you can leave a message and someone will return your call there is somebody there every day they're just not we're not there 24 7 obviously of course well Catherine it's wonderful to have you back on the program particularly armed to the teeth with good news as you have come (laughs) this morning Uh, good luck casting Felix and Oscar and the rest of the cast of the odd couple in the next 24 hours we'll look forward to seeing that later in the season and if you're interested I would love to have you as my guest. Well, we'll, we'll make a date then. There's no question okay. about it. Um, uh, people in Radioland have heard you say that, so I'm going to hold you to it. Oh, I expect to, expect to be held to it. Catherine, okay. thanks very much for this. We will see each other this fall season, no question. Okay, thanks. Hi, it's Shauna, and I might be a bad parent because my kids think french fries are vegetables. Hey, it's Ryan, and I might be a bad parent because I went out for wings when my wife was in the hospital after giving birth. Johnny here. I might be a bad parent because in my house, the tooth fairy gives pocket change. But we're not alone. Len emailed us and said his six-year-old daughter's Tarzan moment going from love seat to lazy boy by curtains made him more proud than any dance (laughs) recital. And Andy left his two-year-old at the rink. All right, guys, I'm sure we're not alone, like Andy's kid. 
<laughs> For stories and confessions like this, make sure you check out our podcast. It's called Bad Parents and it's available wherever you get your podcasts. I left a glove at the rink.